What's up, Team Female? Welcome to Female Political Strategy. Female first, female forward, politically non-binary. I'm Ro. I'm Lilith. And I'm Elle. So welcome to the last episode of the season. So we are wrapping up this first season of FPS on episode 25 with the conclusion of our series on asymmetric warfare. Yeah. So we're just going to take a bit of a seasonal break. This is not a cancellation. We will be coming back. When? I do not know. That is to be decided, but stay tuned. But for our season finale, we're going to talk about the last part of Asymmetric Warfare. So in part one, I'll just briefly summarize. Basically, we read from How the Weak Win Wars, A Theory of Asymmetric Conflict by Ivan Ergentoft. And the thesis of this article is that the weak actor strategy can defeat the power of a stronger actor, right? So, you know, I hear often women say in feminism, you know, men are bigger, men are stronger, people acting like men's physical size advantage is an absolute, that way we can never overcome that and so on. And I disagree. I think that by studying asymmetric warfare as women, we can learn how to defeat male violence and their uh, asymmetric strength advantage. But just to summarize, there's two types of strong actor strategies. There's the direct attack which is just conventional warfare, and there's barbarism, where the goal is to defeat the willpower of the weaker actor. And right now I'm going to go into the two types of weaker actor strategy. There's direct defense, which is just the usual, you know, using your military to try to thwart the attack of the stronger actor. And then there's guerrilla warfare strategy, which is my favorite. The best way to explain what guerrilla warfare strategy is and how it works, I'm just going to read this quote from Mao Zedong. In guerrilla warfare, select the tactic of seeming to come from the east and attacking from the west. Avoid the solid, attack the hollow. Attack, withdraw, deliver a lightning blow, seek a lightning decision. When guerrillas engage a stronger enemy, they withdraw when he advances, harass him when he stops, strike him when he's weary, pursue him when he withdraws. In guerrilla strategy, the enemy's rear flanks and other vulnerable spots are his vital points, and there he must be harassed, attacked, dispersed, exhausted, and annihilated. Elle, do you have any thoughts on guerrilla warfare strategy? <laughs> so, I mean, we've seen it used here, actually, during the civil rights era, where um, where you had entities that were trying to usurp the way the government was doing things. And obviously, they did it for the right reasons. It was to promote civil rights. But many have compared like what the Black Panthers were trying to do to, quote unquote, asymmetric warfare, where they used force, but it was, um, it was more uh, sabotage and subterfuge. And it's really... The best analogy I can think of is the lion and the mouse, the story about how the mice, the mouse, I think the lion had like a thorn in his paw and the mouse was basically the bane of this um, lion's existence. So by all means, the lion should be able to crush the mouse, but the mouse was able to use its speed and its ability to basically move, outmaneuver the lion, who's a giant bureaucracy, which would be considered the conventional force here, as the guerrilla force. So he doesn't have weight and might, but he's the smaller, faster, more um, agile. Yeah. And so the, the premise of guerrilla warfare strategy is that you're using a smaller military force. It's more mobile. It actually has an advantage over a traditional military because a traditional military is very large. It's very difficult to sometimes, um, you know, mobilize on a large, you know, large scale or move very quickly. You know, the larger your military, I guess, you know, the slower you move, the more like bureaucracy and the more like shit you got to deal with in terms of like, you know, supply chains and 
Is it supply chains or supply lines? I don't know. The supply chain. Supply chains, yeah. Yeah. Well, supply, well, you want like logistics lines, yeah. Exactly. So, like, it's just more complicated and slower moving, right? And so, a guerrilla warfare group, it's small, agile groups. They tend to take advantage of terrain like swamps, forest, mountains, and so on. There's a few things that guerrilla warfare strategy requires is it requires moral restraint of the stronger actor, which some men have and some men don't. Let's be real. Like so, some men like will, you know, will not hesitate to go like full psycho on you and like go completely scorched earth. Other men are like, oh, you know, there's certain lines that they won't cross. And it's not always easy to tell which sort of man he is, you know, like there's ways of like kind of vetting, I guess, but just one example of like corner, not cornering that puts the man in the situation where he's a bigger actor. And then the woman is the gorilla in the situation is, um, for instance, like the Amber Heard situation or where a woman physically can assault a man, but the man has to use restraint or the other way around where, um, when, the woman is in an abusive situation, but instead of hitting him back, she like poisons him in her sleep or uses her or waits for him when he's drunk or something. Yeah. To, to shoot him or, Oh yeah. She just shoots him. So that's asymmetric warfare. Well, when I, when we were talking about the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard thing, you know, a bunch of people were saying like, she's the abuser, yada, yada, yada kind of thing. And then a woman from India commented being like, you know, women in India beat the shit out of their abusive drunk husbands. And I, I actually kind of thought that was, I was like, genius. Like if he's an abusive piece of shit, wait for him to be in a weakened state, like when he's drunk. And that's when you can do your counterattack if he's already abusive to you, obviously. And um, yeah, and another example actually is um, there's certain like age gap relationships, actually. And again, in general, like I don't advise using these strategies with men that you're actively in a relationship with. I'm thinking more like, you know, this is self-defense. This is self-defense. Like if, you, if you're in a situation where you have to use physical force against a man, like you're better off just leaving that relationship. If you can't leave for a variety of reasons, like you're being like literally held captive or there's other things going on, then yeah, okay. Using like physical force in self-defense and so on, that's justified. But I'm thinking more, say, you know, you're trying to leave and he's now your ex or something like that and he's coming after you and stuff like that. So I think it would be justifiable to do a counterattack when he's in a weakened state, let's just say. Yeah. That's actually another thing is like, men need to know to like watch their back. Like it's also about the psychological effect on the male population. Um, That's actually the the underrated aspect of guerrilla warfare strategy is that it basically like exhausts and defeats the morale of the stronger actor. And so both barbarism and guerrilla warfare strategy, the indirect attacks, they're about the battle of the mind, so to speak. It's not necessarily about what forces you have. It's more about willpower. The thing that you're attacking isn't their military might. You're attacking their will to fight. So, oh shit, that rhymed. Anyways, (laughs) um... (laughs) That was accidental, but... <laughs> Colonel Seuss over here, not Dr. Seuss, but... But anyway, so yeah, guerrilla warfare strategy requires an opponent with moral restraint because there have been a few examples throughout history of people using guerrilla warfare strategy and then the stronger actor just goes completely scorched earth, like salts the earth, burns the fields, like just completely, you know, if you have a smaller force and you go against someone willing to use barbarism, you are fucked. But if you're using guerrilla warfare strategy against someone who is using a traditional military attack, then you're in a better position to win. In fact, that's the thesis. That's actually the argument that Ivan Ergentoff makes in this article is that essay, I guess, um, which is that 
weaker actors are more likely to win confrontations, which are the opposite, which are the opposite, basically. So if, and he, you know, he gives a bunch of examples from the Vietnam War. You can read the article itself. I'm not going to break it all down. But basically, when a stronger actor uses a direct attack and the weaker actor uses guerrilla warfare strategy, the weaker actor is more likely to win. If the stronger actor uses barbarism and the weaker actor uses direct defense, they're actually more likely to win. Oh, just wanted to plug a quick example of uh, where moral restraint would kind of be important or incumbent on the uh, on the aggressor, so the male in the situation, would be, say he has something to lose by retaliating um, in equal force. So like barbarism, it's like you go ham on this like criminal who's also beating on you. He has nothing to lose. He'll hit you back. Whereas if there's like a guy with a white collar job or maybe works for the government or a high profile position where if you retaliate, you know he's stuck in a position where if he acts against you, your accusations are going to weigh heavily than how he responded to you or how he responded to you will bolster your, um, your circumstances. So just, just think carefully about this and just, just be careful. Uh, don't be a dick. That's my only, (laughs) my only request. Yeah, it's important to be careful, and it's also important to be, like, calculating, and, you know, we're giving these as guidelines. I'm saying this because I want women to think more critically about the sort of conflicts that they're in and the dynamics at play and so on. It's better to wait and then act rather than just be like, you know, this isn't like a pre-programmed, like, if you do, if this is this, then do this kind of thing, right? This isn't like, you know, with pickup artists or whatever, how they give you lines, <laughs> scripts to say to women, yeah. you know, like this. <laughs> this isn't a coaching course. This is literally saying in times of do your duress, like. This is like a framework of analysis or like a strategy for approaching conflict. And it's more complicated than plug and play. Yeah, so it requires moral restraint. It also requires physical or political sanctuary. So yeah, swamp, forest, mountains, political sanctuary is nearby friendly countries and so on. And it requires a supportive population. In guerrilla warfare strategy, the guerrilla fighters, you know, they require local villagers and so on to feed them, hide them, support them, give them information and so on. So that's another really important point for us as women is, you know, if we want to succeed in a guerrilla warfare strategy, we need to be more sympathetic to our fellow fighters (laughs) and be more supportive to other women. I feel I feel like one of the weaknesses that I feel we have in feminism is this tendency to, you know, you're not a real feminist, or if you're not as feminist as me, or if you're doing feminism differently than me, like, you're wrong and stupid, I'm going to destroy you kind of thing. My point being, as much as possible, try to build connections that you can with women. Obviously, if they're going to stab you in the back, then have boundaries, right? But don't actively antagonize other women if it's not necessary, is my point. You know, we need to build sanctuary with other women. It's, it's funny. As a resident conservative, I felt like that was a dog whistle, but okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean it genuinely, even though I'm left wing and you're conservative, I'm like, you know what, Elle, you're still based. I can tell that you care about women, even if we don't agree on everything. How we care about women. Yeah, exactly. Here's the complicated thing is that as I explained in episode one, male violence serves the function of both direct attack and barbarism. If the point of this essay about asymmetric warfare is that the weak actor should use the opposite strategy of what the stronger actor is using to win, 
that complicates things for us as women because it's very situational. Sometimes one type of defense might be good in one situation and it might not be as beneficial in another one. It's complicated, right? To add to that, there isn't a clear delineation between, say, two countries, right? There's citizens of country A and citizens of country B, and they're all kind of working together to achieve one goal, then it's very top-down kind of thing. Nation of men and nation of women, it's a metaphorical. It's not a literal nation, right? Um, There's no like central government. There's no council of women to decide on what we're going to do. It's very diffuse. Well, to that point, though, before uh, we move on, that's another big weakness of guerrilla warfare is making sure that the shared end state is stays shared. And that's like the beauty of the bureaucracy is like you can have a desired end state and shared amongst the organization. And there's that structure that keeps it cohesive. And that's why you find a lot of guerrilla forces tend to be extremely ideological because it's easy to share an ideology But when it comes down to like tactics or plans or operations or even, you know, planning ahead of time and backwards planning, they they struggle with that element because it's ideology focused. You now have to organize and get out of like the ideological mindset, which, like I said, going back to like the whole woman part, don't do what ISIS did, which is called like tech fear, where they pulled a no true Muslim thing. God, I'm saying like, don't do what ISIS did. Nobody should do what anything that ISIS did. Yeah. But they had this... <laughs> do nothing that ISIS did, but here's a specific example of something you should not do. Yeah, so they, there's this concept in um, Islam, and it's called like takfir. And takfir actually has the word... I won't get into the entomology of it, but kafir is an infidel. And you know, your relationship with God and being a Muslim is actually something directly between you and God. So there's no like hierarchy or external authority that can determine. We can all just witness whether you're Muslim or not, but nobody can determine that you're Muslim or not. But ISIS took it a step further and decided that there are certain elements in which you can no longer be Muslim under, which is a whole other thing that they kind of, yeah, that's the radical part of Islam. But what they did was they used that to create combatants out of nowhere. I call it like the create a combatant kit where they would be like, those women and children in that city, all the civilians, yeah, well, they're kafar, they're infidels. Therefore, and the act of calling somebody an infidel now makes them a legal target, quote unquote. Um, so they got so swept up in their ideology and this takfirism that they actually tr- started turning on each other. Like the Western forces didn't really have to do anything. And so when people talk about the feminist movement and when they're like, you're not feminist enough, you're not feminist enough, you're not a feminist. And you start turning on each other and you have this black belt community calling people like, co- like whatever heinous words they use for women and we have to stay together and not commit ideological takfir in that sense. I don't I don't know if there's an English word for it. But um It's like no true Scotsman. I mean that's a different actually it's a different function. Kinda. It's a, it's a good parallel. It's a good parallel where you're like, well, no good feminist would do X, Y, and Z and you just keep creating it, but I, I can't think of a better term for it. Yeah, I think it's important to just refrain from this sort of like black and white thinking. I find there's this tendency to either like hate something or stand something, uh, especially with like internet culture. I feel like humans in general, we want to see things in black and white. You know, we want to see ourselves as the good guys and we want to see our antagonists as the bad guys. And we got to like actively fight that lizard brain shit. I'm glad you went there because I wanted to drop some F-bio here in a second. There's this sort of thing where whenever we say like we should be more supportive of other women, they're like, what about women who did this? Well, what about women who are racist? Well, confront that in your like civil rights equality circle, in your economic rights equality circle, not female rights. The the ideology here is about women. Don't. And that's why I struggle with intersectionalism, because it creates this like victim Olympics 
and it creates pockets of like radical victims that are all separated from each other and, and yeah that can't work together. and what happens is you get the victims fighting each other instead of the the entity, the larger entity that's harming all of them, right? So, like, you end up with guerrilla groups fighting each other. Ironically, they want, like, a gold medal. They want a gold medal from the oppressor, quote-unquote. They're like, oh, white man, please, I am the most victimist of victims. <laughs> it just pisses me off. <laughs> I feel like what happens is they just lose focus of the goal, right? Because if you make it a culture of virtue signaling or being on the right side of history rather than strategic initiative towards specific goals, then that's when you get all of the infighting and all of the like cognitive dissonance between the different types of conflicting interests, right? Because ultimately it's like a lifestyle choice and less a political action group, right? It's like a ladies who lunch group at that point where it's just like, we're going to say a bunch of beliefs that sound nice on the surface and not pay attention to how it actually uh, affects people. Yeah. That's why I think it's important to be pro-female above all else. This is the other thing is if we want to defeat male violence, we as women need to be pro-female and prioritize femaleness above anything else. There's certain women where being anti-trans, for example, is more important to them than being pro-female. And I think the Black Pillars and certain other gender-critical groups tend to do this, where, um, I, I won't drop any names, but basically there's certain women where... It's me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, it's not Elle. It's someone else. But uh, basically, you know, there are certain GC women where, you know, if certain women don't live up to their standards, they do not hesitate to just completely attack those women because being anti-trans is more important to them than being pro-female, if that makes sense, right? So it's important to have some camaraderie around being female and not throw women under the bus in pursuit of other causes, which are largely male interest-based. Can I say something like maybe cancelable? edit this out if you guys feel like it's off-brand, but um, I'd like to say something that's a little off-brand, and it's, I am a chromosomal purist. Um, <laughs> Which is what? What does that mean? I mean, double X or die. Like, I, I'm sorry, if you have some variation of the Y chromosome, you're a dude. And I'm not talking about, like, the 1800 outliers that exist of, like, double, triple X or whatever. The intersex people? Not talking about them. Outliers are outliers. Let's go back to basic, like, fourth grade statistics, right? Like, we're talking in the middle general population. Yeah, so if you're in the middle there, in, in a scatter plot, you have an XX or XY chromosome. And if you have two X's, you're a chick. If you decide to wander over and say you're a dude now, okay, great, you're a dude for the time being, but I'm not allowing the other way where you have a Y chromosome and you're like, I'm a girl. No, man, I'll fight like a dude if I have to. Yeah, I'm sorry, but like, if you want to leave the female club, you can, but you cannot join it unless you're a female. It's a one-way ticket. You could come back in sounding like a test, like a tested up, uh, roided up. That's okay. You still like you still have double X. Like you got the card. No, I agree. Like I, I think it is important to have that sort of in-group loyalty. I don't know to not allow like infiltrators. That's another. That's another weakness of guerrilla warfare strategy. Is like they're so easily infiltrated. <laughs> and, okay, so can I make another ISIS thing? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> So ISIS, like in their fucking like ideological idiocy, they 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 took this to another level where they were killing innocent civilians because they quote weren't Muslim enough, right? But there were no shit working hand in hand with the cartel with human smuggling and part of the drug trade essentially. So they're like dealing drugs and doing like big, very haram shit, but also like you're not Muslim enough because you don't cover your eye with the right thickness of veil. Yeah, don't be that kind of feminist. 
Yeah, don't be that kind of feminist that's like, if you date men, you know, you're an enemy to womankind, you cock-addicted slut bitch whore. Ugh. Ugh. It's like such a 12-year-old thing to say, too. Like, ooh, let me list all the curse words I know. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Anyway, so now that I've summarized the essay, How the Week Win Wars, and again, I strongly encourage all women to read the article itself. It's very well written, by the way. It's it's like a mandatory reading. Yeah, it's, I think it's mandatory reading for all women. It's also pretty accessible. I didn't find it to be too like technical or heavy or dense like a lot of academic writing, so I found it actually very readable. Well, the guy opens up with like a vignette about like Muhammad Ali. Right? Uh, just taking the hits, and he's like, hit me again. I was like, this is a really good paper. Yeah, <laughs> I love this, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna tag when I when I finally publish my article, sort of interpreting his article, I'm gonna like tag him on Twitter and see if he reacts, see if he likes it. So also follow this guy. It's uh at I M A R R E G U I N T O F T. So I'm Arrogant Toft. I love how you know his Twitter handle like right off the top of your head. Not off the top of my head, I'm looking at it. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Oh, that's peak so, yeah, so we summarize the article. Let's talk about the strategies. So yes, strategy number one, I talked about this in episode one. Number one is we need to actively resist our own demoralization because men use male violence, specifically barbarism to demoralize us. It bothers me a lot when I see women say stuff like men will always win because they're bigger and stronger than us. Like he could always be violent if he wanted to. If you're saying stuff like that, men have gotten inside of your head and they are controlling you. Stop it reject those thoughts. Okay. Here's the thing is like, even though it's true that yes, men could use violence at any time. And it's true that men are larger and stronger than us. First of all, it doesn't give them permission to use violence against us. Secondly, that doesn't mean we can't enforce consequences. And thirdly, the way that you deter male violence is by making it so costly to them that they choose not to use it. By going along with this narrative of male violence is inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it and women will always be weaker, it's giving men what they want. So we have to fight that. It's like people that buy the club for steering wheels, you know, like the club steering wheel locker clips on your ceiling where it doesn't actually work, but it's more of a deterrent. It's just the inconvenience of having to dismantle the thing. You might as well go try to break into something else. It's actually better than that. Like there's a, a Freakonomics, I don't know if it was the first one or the second one that talked about how having GPS trackers in cars in some cars is actually more is actually more effective than locking your steering wheel. Because locking your steering wheel, and they compare this to, I, th- I can't remember who it was, compared this to sexual assault and how by saying like, oh, if women do this and this and this to avoid getting raped, then the man's just going to avoid you, but he's going to go find another woman. Same thing with the steering wheel. It's like, he's avoiding that car, he's going to go rob a different car. What we need to do is do something more like the GPS trackers, which creates a sort of uncertainty in the mind of the robber. They don't know which cars are bait cars. It deters car thievery overall, instead of just telling them, oh, go rob someone else. So we need to do something like that with women, where it creates a certain fear or uncertainty in men so that they know that there will be consequences or the possibility of consequences if they act on their violence. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So they feel like at any given point, anything is a risk and the risk, make the risk not worth it, essentially. Yeah, like a big reason why men use violence at the rates that they do is because they don't fear consequences. It kind of bothers me a little bit. Again, we talked about this in episode one, how men will be like, well, false rape accusations. And women go like, well, false rape accusations are rare and only 2% of accusations lead to a conviction and so on. And I'm like, you don't understand. Men aren't, men aren't going to honor you for being truthful. They're going to see that and think, oh, so you're telling me there's no consequences for rape, so I can just go out and rape as many people as I want, right? Well, it seems like a lot of their... A lot of them had a reaction that was almost extreme, 
where they said, well, if women can't be trusted to tell, quote unquote, tell the truth about rape accusations, and if there's false rape accusations out here, then I'm never going to be alone with a woman ever. Good. Yeah, I definitely feel, I definitely agree. I think the guys that for whom this is an issue are the ones that are probably the most paranoid, (laughs) quite frankly. The sort of men who say things like, false rape accusations happen when a woman has bad sex and she regrets it after. No, what you're describing is probably rape. You probably did actually rape her. Or, you know, it's like similar to the David Portnoy thing where she goes over to have sex and then he takes massive, massive liberties and does a bunch of messed up stuff. Well, she consented to sex. Well, she didn't get consent to getting like strangled or punched in the face or anything like that. Okay. My point being that like, they're saying this is a false rape accusation. It's not a false rape accusation. That's a correct rape accusation. Instead of trying to lessen men's fear over false rape accusations, we should actually be like, no, you know what? Like if you make a woman have a bad time, during sex, like they don't see it as rape. So we, we won't say rape. We'll say like, if you fail to make this a pleasurable experience for her, that's a risk that you're taking on by not pleasing women. So I, okay. I see where you're, where you're going with that. Um, so I actually do have friends that were falsely accused of rape. Um, one was not sexually even into women. So that, that was actually the sad part of all of that. I'm, I want to believe that they're in the minority. So I think what we need to do is stigmatize forcible sex. Right. So like I'm pro stigmatization. I think we've overdone normalization. Let's not normalize shit anymore. Let's stigmatize more things. Let's bring stigmatizing back. So one of the things that I am really keen on is just like shame. Shame is such a powerful driver, especially for men. Yo, there's a reason why men have such a viscerally negative reaction to shame. It's because it works. Men hate feeling ashamed. Yeah. And like disgust is a primal instinct. I mean, that's what keeps us alive, right? Like we're disgusted by things to stay alive. So like just be disgusted, be like, ugh, you can't make me come. So that way that like men understand that being a good dude will keep you in the circle. You don't need to rape. That's disgusting. And then we need to like start corralling and like courting normal good guys and saying, hey, look, isn't it gross when those guys like do that? Create the in-group out. Hey, we're girls. We know how to do the in-group out group thing. So let's add shame to it. I hear where you guys are going, but the problem is the in-group politics between men are such that the appearance of dominance takes the top of the hierarchy, right? A lot of these guys who are rapists or sexually predatory, it's not necessarily just because it's like a certain level of male entitlement that sometimes gets encouraged, right? And we've talked about how things like frat culture or D1 athlete culture that encourages a certain level of sexually predatory behavior because it gives them an appearance of masculinity. And the disrespect of women is actually kind of part of it, or the ability to treat women as commodities. And that's like a dominance hierarchy that's maintained with men. It's a little bit hard to see outside of legal repercussions. How do you break that up? Like the only thing that you can do is fear. Yeah. So a few things. One, like there's legal consequences. Secondly, reputational damage is actually incredibly powerful. Here's the thing is even like men who are literally like abusers, literally wife beaters who beat the shit otherwise, even they care about their public image. Abusive men generally don't like slap their woman in front of other, in front of other people. They'll wait until they're behind closed doors, right? Even literal abusers care about their public image. Nobody wants to be seen as an abuser or a rapist or anything like that. So my point with the whole like fear of false 
rape accusations is, you know, whether he's guilty or not, what I'm saying is that men are very, very, very afraid of reputational damage. They care what other men think. Not just what other men think, but sorry, go ahead. But the problem is other men won't think it's wrong. And my experience from observing the fallout from Me Too is that like there was lip service about consequences, but ultimately not a whole lot of real ones for anybody but the worst offenders and sometimes not even them cough bill cosby who's uh, st- I, w- I was gonna say skipping around free but he is elderly so i don't know uh hobbling himself somewhere around free <laughs> hobbling around free somewhere um and there seems everybody's kind of okay with that like it, and so not that i'm like somewhat skeptical but i i'm more or less like the reputational damage is only effective insofar as you're able to actually snatch some kind of power from them right whereas like what it seems to have happened is for a lot of these guys they've just sort of mobilized an entire army of angry men to defend even their most heinous behavior or like demand that people forgive their shitty behavior i mean yeah men are gonna fight back right like that that's to be expected like any anything that women do men are gonna fight it the only small thing i want to add is i think we're considering men to be too much of a monolith and what i really genuinely believe is that there is a group of men that don't do shitty things and what i'm saying is influence them again this is the asymmetric warfare aspect of it right where we influence them and so you get them on our side and say hey by being a good dude and that's where women come in so we don't even target the shitty dudes we don't even like address them directly of course self-defend yourself but create that men on have the men shame the shitty men for you so that way now these rapists and stuff have their fellow men to answer to because at the end of the day you're right men respect what other men think before they care about before even considering a woman a human being all right, so one <laughs> one more counterpoint. So I feel like feminists tried that, and that's how they came up with the male feminist. Oh, I see what you're right. <laughs> and the problem yeah, with it's, that, it's, the problem with that is ultimately, first of all, that guy is, ends up being just as creepy in some respects because he's motivated by sex. But then, if they don't have enough sufficient power, quote unquote, in the dom, hate using the phrase dominance hierarchy because it just sounds so Jordan Peterson is. Yeah, yeah, Jordan Peterson, uh, that, um, that essentially, like, in order for them to shame these men, these men have to respect who they are in the first place. And unfortunately, like, especially economically, there's a certain level of sociopathy and, and psychopathy that's rewarded. And that's why for a long time men were excused in their behavior if they did something quote-unquote great it's like you could barely criticize even someone like bill clinton up until very very recently where it just became completely indefensible because he was on jeffrey epstein's plane but you know the fact that he cheated on his wife all the time and then everybody was always very rude to all the women who came forward and talked about being sexually harassed by bill clinton and he was still like a media darling in the democratic party for a very long time even among so-called feminists right not all of the feminists let me be clear about that like very strategically public figure liberal feministy people who kind of rewrote it as like an affair rather than like workplace sexual harassment which you may arguably you could say monaco's an affair but there's other women that came forward like jennifer flowers and some other women that said that bill clinton just straight up sexually harassed them so um you know when it's stuff like that it's not even just men that do it, but it's also women that do it. It's like the allure of power because what men who rape and are able to get away with it is, it's part of power privilege. And so I think, 
I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not coming up with an alternative strategy. I'm just pointing out that like some of the strategies that have been used are somewhat. But no, that's a fair point though. This is a limitation or a challenge. So what you're saying, Rose, you're talking about how, you know, men tend to only care about other men's opinions. Men who are violent are rewarded to some extent, right? Uh, including by women. It's a little bit of a balance because I definitely have felt like, you know, on one hand, yes, you do need men to maintain the social order with men, but like the appeals to empathy or even the shaming coming from women when we see it in practice doesn't seem to be as, as effective as everyone wants it to be. But I don't know what the solution is. Again, like, Shame works better on certain men and in certain situations, right? So all of the strategies that I'm saying, they're not one size fits all and they might work better in some situations and might not be as effective in other situations. And that's what I mean about, you know, male violence serves both functions of both direct attack and barbarism. And so which strategies we take as women is going to vary depending on the situation. And so it's going to vary depending on how much power he has relative to you. So if he has a lot more power than you, it's going to be a lot more difficult. If he has a similar amount of power than you or less power than you, you know, it might be more effective. It also depends how many other allies do you have as women. Like if your rapist, for example, say he's more powerful than you, but if you can get another more powerful woman to vouch for you or come forward herself or multiple women come forward, right? So this is what I mean about it being complicated and there's a lot of factors at play. And so these are just sort of almost like general guidelines. And while there may be limitations, men like Johnny Depp are, I feel like men like Johnny Depp are so beloved. There's so many women that are thirsty as fuck for him. He's like a heartthrob. They're like teenage heartthrob, right? So very interestingly enough, and this is this is like primate behavior and observed primate behavior. And I'll see if I can find the article to link it. But um, when it comes to sexual violence among like chimpanzees, which is fairly frequent, it's really interestingly similar to humans in the sense that certain quote unquote alpha males or the more dominant males of the group can usually get away with a lot of sexual violence as long as they stick to like the lower members of the group. There's a dominance hierarchy among males and then one among females. If they attack a higher ranking female, then there tends to be like group cohesion to push back on the like aggressive alpha male who commits a lot of sexual violence. Or if he attacks too many of the females in the group, then the chimpanzees start to like fight back as a group. And it's very interesting. And I wonder if that's just... You study chimpanzees and I'm just, this is how I am intuitively. And so I'm describing the way that I am. You're like, <laughs> you're like Lilith, that's a lot like how chimpanzees are. <laughs> like, thanks. <laughs> but I'm saying that might be primate behavior where it's like group dynamics only start to gain momentum if there's a certain, if there's like a certain level of power of the victim involved, or if that person becomes too much of a widespread liability. Otherwise, people kind of just let power rest. It's a little bit complicated. Yeah. And that's what I find really interesting, though, right? And I, this is some, one thing that I found really interesting in my lifelong study of office politics is that like, you know, if there's the office bully, if they're like the owner of the company, or if they're really close friends with the owner of the company or something like that, it's much more difficult to fight back against them. But if the office bully is someone who's maybe a little bit like weird or like less popular or they don't have friends in high places, that sort of thing, they're a lot easier to defeat. So that's what I mean. It's like you have to be mentally agile and take account and inventory of the whole situation. Who knows who, what's the group dynamics, who has the power, who has the quiet power. That's another thing is like, just because someone has the title CEO, CFO, whatever, just because they have that title, there's other people who the people who are in power, who are completely reliant on and who they really trust. That's another conversation. But my point being that like, yeah, strategy number one, we, as women, we have to actively resist our own demoralization. And strategy number two was we need to demoralize violent men. 
We need to strike fear into their hearts. Even if the conviction rate for rape is like 2%, we may need to make them think that they will for sure get caught or face some kind of consequences. And it's not a coincidence that the men who complain the most about false rape accusations or whatever, these guys are usually pretty low status men. They're men who know that they would face consequences if they were to, you know, or more likely to face consequences. Whereas men who have more power, they might play up those kinds of narratives, you know, like Johnny Depp about like, yeah, men can be victims too, like that sort of thing, because it benefits them. But it's it's complicated. But long story short, we need to demoralize men and deter male violence and make them basically do a cost benefit analysis in their own mind, where the benefit of doing the violence is lower than the cost of doing the violence. We need to enforce consequences is what I'm saying, or at least get them to think that there will be consequences. So strategy number three, and this is one of my favorites actually, is if he resorts to barbarism, turning public opinion against him. This is one of those strategies that I use all the time at work. It's I use it so frequently, it almost comes as like second nature to me, where um, I'll even sometimes like provoke the other person into uh, like a crazy reaction that will make them look bad. But there are certain people where, you know, it's, it, this it works especially with men who are prone, who have poor impulse control, they're prone to very like angry reactions. Um, it works best if they're actually drunk or intoxicated. A, a good example, actually, I, I talked about this on the Thanksgiving episode of the FDS podcast with my uncle, where I just was saying little, like needling little comments to kind of get under his skin because I knew he had a temper, right? And so eventually he blew up. That made him look like a psycho. Everyone else was like, oh my gosh, like Jim, I can't believe you would say such a thing. And meanwhile, I stood back like, oh my God, I can't believe you would say such a thing to me like playing the innocent flower kind of thing. If you know that the other person can be kind of psycho, it doesn't take much to provoke them into a psycho reaction. But this only works in a group dynamic. So there has to be witnesses, first of all. The other thing is don't do this if you're alone, actually, with a man. And also don't do this. I don't recommend doing this with a man that you're actively in a relationship with, because if he's abusive, he could kill you. And if he's not abusive, then that makes you low-key kind of the abuser. And that's not what we're after here. Like the men that you actually date should be more like partner forces. The men that you actually are in relationships with, you shouldn't be seeing them as the enemy. They should be your partner force, you know? But yeah, this is great for like, you know, shitty male coworkers or just shitty people in general, including shitty women, <laughs> uh, like toxic women. It's getting, you know, your bully to basically publicly embarrass themselves by going overboard. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so far. Yeah. Um, and then the whole turning public a bit opinion against them. Again, like if you were higher status, it's easier to get people to think a certain thing, you know? It's easier to propagandize people or to turn public opinion a certain way the more power you have. If you have less power, it's much more difficult to influence the group opinion on what just happened. You know, if they have more power than you, they could just justify and be like, oh, well, you know, she deserved it. She's crazy or whatever, right? That's an another challenge to keep in mind. Number four, use the terrain to your advantage. Find sanctuary, use institutions to your advantage. And always be situationally aware physically where you are. Yeah. And when I say terrain, I'm not, I'm talking physical as well as like, you know, institutions look critically at your workplace, your government, whatever, take inventory of your situation and use those conditions to your advantage, whatever they are, get creative, be supportive of other women. We need to support our best fighters. All right. It's been a fantastic season. Uh, we foresee this being a short break just to kind of regroup and uh, come back with a bang. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers so far. I think we have a few extra pieces of bonus content we're going to throw up there. Just as a thank you for the people that subscribed up until this point. And we'll be on a break and we'll announce, we'll make an announcement when our season two is starting back up. So stay tuned on our social media. You can follow us on Twitter at Female Political, as well as our Facebook, as well as our Patreon, still patreon.com forward slash Female Political 
strategy. And stay tuned for our FDS newsletter that's coming out. We'll have more discussion and takes on politics and it'll be a little bit more real time than what we're doing on the podcast. But you can sign up for that actually at thefemaledatingstrategy.com. Until next time, Team Female. Thanks for a wonderful season one. Bye, Team Female. See you soon. See you soon. Thank you.